KZYX Fall Pledge Drive ended on Monday, October 24th, but we fell short of our goal. Please show your support for Mendocino County having a local community radio station that connects us all 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. For 33 years, KZYX has been a hub of valuable information and entertainment. Help us keep KZYX and Z funded with your donation by going online to kzyx.org or by mail at P.O. Box 1, Philo, California, 95466. Thanks. Good evening, Mendocino County, and welcome to this month's edition of Inside Education. My name is Michelle Hutchins. I'm your County Superintendent of Schools, and it gives me great pleasure to be with you this evening. Tonight's show will include a variety of safety tips for this upcoming holiday season, and the second half of the show will be outlining California, Federal, and Mendocino counties test scores as recently released by the California Department of Education. We'll summarize with what those test scores really mean for our county. October is my favorite month. It might be because it begins with my birthday and ends with my favorite holiday, Halloween. It's the end of the warm summer season. We have the beginning of crisp air, leaves changing into vibrant colors, long shadows, and the final harvests of the season. October is a special time of year. It's officially autumn, which means cozy apparel, your favorite fall recipes, and beautiful fall foliage. A fun fact about October includes the origin of the name. Although October is our 10th month, October's name comes from the Latin Greek word octo, meaning eight, because it used to be the eighth month of the year under the Roman calendar. So what does Halloween mean? The current English name Halloween traces back to medieval Christianity. The word hallow is derived from the Middle and Old English words for holly. As a noun, it can also mean saint. In those days, the Christian holiday we all know as All Saints Day was called All Hallows Day, and the day before, when the evening mass was held, All Hallows Eve. That three-word name eventually got shortened to Halloween. The ancient Gaelic festival of Samhain, which occurred on November 1st but kicked off the evening before, is considered the earliest known route of our own secular Halloween traditions. It marked a pivotal time of year when seasons changed, but more importantly, observers also believed the boundary between this world and the next became especially thin, enabling them to connect with the dead. This belief is shared by some other cultures. A similar idea is mentioned around the Jewish holiday of Yom Kippur, which is typically occurs in October and involves saying prayers for the dead. This connection to the dead is also where Halloween gains its haunted connotations. The path to the Christian Halloween date of October 31 is a little more complex. In the early 17th century, Pope Boniface IV began All Saints Day in the early 7th century when he dedicated the Pantheon in Rome to the saints, but the day was May 13. In the next century, Pope Gregory III changed the day to November 1st when he dedicated a chapel in St. Peter's Basilica to the saints. 
Yet another century later, Pope Gregory IV added All Saints Day to the Christian calendar, extending the celebration from Rome to churches everywhere. With All Saints Day came All Hallows' Eve on October 31st. This was perhaps an effort to offset the pagan occasion with a religious celebration. The early pagan holiday of Samhain involved a lot of ritualistic ceremonies to connect to spirits, as the Celts were polytheistic. While there isn't a lot of detail known about these celebrations, many believe the Celts were celebrated in costume. Granted, they were likely as simple as animal hides, as a disguise against the ghosts, enjoyed special feasts, made lanterns by hollowing out gourds, hence the history of jack-o'-lanterns. Over time, as Christianity took over the pagan undertones of the holiday, they were lessened. The basic traditions of the holiday remained a part of the pop culture every year. They simply evolved and modernized. The mystic rituals of earlier times evolved into more lighthearted fun and games. For example, the somewhat heavy concept of connecting to the dead was replaced with more lighthearted idea of telling the future. Bobbing for apples, for example, became popular as a fortune-telling game on All Hallows' Eve. Apples would be selected to represent all of a woman's suitors, and the guy, or apple, she ended up biting into would supposedly represent her future husband. In fact, Halloween previously posed a huge, albeit rather superstitious, matchmaking opportunity for young women in the 19th century. Another popular All Hallows' Eve ritual was mirror gazing, as people hope to catch a vision of their future by looking into the mirror. There are also reports of fortune cookie-like favors being given out during earlier times. People wrote messages on pieces of paper in milk, and the notes were then folded and placed into walnut shells. The shells would be heated over a fire, causing the milk to brown just enough for the message to mystically appear on the paper for the recipient. Many people were said to dress up as saints and recite songs and verses door to door. Children would also go door to door asking for soul cakes, a treat similar to biscuits. Technical note, soul cakes originated as part of the All Souls Day holiday on November 2nd, Yes, a third holiday following Halloween and All Saints Day, but eventually became part of Halloween night as the concept evolved into trick-or-treating. The candy-grabbing concept also became mainstream in the U.S. in early to mid-1900s, during which families would provide treats to children in hopes that they would be immune to any holiday pranks. As for the costumes, they evolved too. While they began as earnest tributes to saints, that tradition likely fell out of favor at some point. Until young Scottish and Irish pranksters got the idea to dress up in scary-looking garb, again as a way to spook unsuspecting neighbors. And just like that, thanks to these local hooligans, Halloween costumes became scary, spooky, funny, and creative all at the same time. 
Halloween obviously remains a popular holiday in America today, but it actually almost didn't make it across the Atlantic. The Puritans were disapproving of the holiday's pagan roots, so they didn't take part. The American colonial Halloween celebrations that did take place featured large public parties to commemorate the upcoming harvest, tell ghost stories, sing, and dance. However, the holiday only took hold as part of the national zeitgeist in the second half of the 19th century, as Irish and Scottish immigrants began to arrive in America in greater numbers. It's estimated that by the early 20th century, Halloween was celebrated across North America by the majority of candy-loving, costume-wearing people. And this year, once again, we'll all be enjoying our favorite candy and admiring our neighbor's decorations on October 31st. And the only spooky spirits we'll be talking about are the witch and ghost costumes our friends are wearing. Schools celebrate Halloween in many different ways. Younger classes, elementary classrooms tend to have Halloween parties. Middle school students tend to have more game-oriented and math fun with Halloween-type activities, whereas upper grades will use Halloween more as writing prompts and opportunities to have students be creative with theatrical presentations of different writing applications. Halloween safety is especially important as kids love the magic of Halloween, but costumes and traffic safety are essential for trick-or-treaters. A couple of tips I'm gonna share here can help make a safe and happy holiday for everyone. In terms of costume safety, to help ensure adults and children have a safe holiday, FDA.gov has compiled a list of Halloween safety tips. Before Halloween arrives, be sure to choose a costume that won't cause safety hazards. All costumes, wigs, and accessories should be fire resistant. If children are allowed out after dark, fasten reflective tape to their costumes and bags, or give them glow sticks. Glow sticks are a great alternative, and who doesn't love a glow stick? Opt for non-toxic Halloween makeup over masks, as masks can obscure vision, but always test makeup on a small area first to see if any irritation develops, and don't forget to remove all the makeup before your children go to bed to prevent any skin or eye irritation plus a mess on your pillowcase. When children are on the prowl, here's a scary statistic. Children are more than twice as likely to be hit by a car and killed on Halloween than any other day of the year. Lack of visibility because of low lighting at night also plays a factor in these incidents. So keep these tips in mind when your children are out on Halloween night. A responsible adult should accompany young children on neighborhood rounds. If your older children are going alone, plan and review a route acceptable to you. Agree on a specific time your children should return home. Teach your children never to enter a stranger's home or car.
instruct children to travel only in familiar, well-lit areas and stick with their friends. Tell your children not to eat any treats until they return home and take care to avoid any food allergies. Some safety tip for motorists. For anyone who plans to be on the road during trick-or-treat hours, please watch for children walking on roadways, medians, and curbs. Enter and exit driveways and alleys carefully. At twilight and later in the evening, watch for children in dark clothing. And please discourage new, inexperienced drivers from driving on Halloween at all. Just a few safety tips to help make a safe and happy Halloween for everyone. You're listening to Inside Education. This is Michelle Hutchins, County Superintendent of Schools, and we're discussing Halloween safety. But let's face it, holidays are not always fun for everyone. For some students, holidays disrupt their normal routine, disrupt their feeling of safety, disrupt their food security, friend group, and can create isolation. It's important during holiday season that both teachers and parents look for signs of either depression or anxiety in their children. Anxiety shows up when children do not outgrow the fears and worries that are typical in young children, or when there are so many fears and worries that they interfere with school, home, or play activities. The child may be diagnosed with an anxiety disorder. Examples of different types of anxiety disorders in children include being very afraid when away from parents, known as separation anxiety, this can also show up as a fear of being away from school. Having extreme fear about a specific thing or situation, such as dogs, insects, or going to the doctor, these are known as phobias. Being afraid of school or other places where there are people, which is a social anxiety. Being very worried about the future and about bad things happening, which is general anxiety and having repeated episodes of sudden, unexpected, intense fear that come with symptoms like heart pounding, having trouble breathing, or feeling dizzy, shaky, or sweaty. And this is known as a panic disorder. All of this information is coming from the Center of Disease Control and Prevention online at cdc.gov. Anxiety may present as fear or worry, but can also make children irritable and angry. Anxiety symptoms can also include trouble sleeping, as well as physical symptoms like fatigue, headaches, or stomach aches. Some anxious children keep their worries to themselves, and thus the symptoms can be missed. Depression, on the other hand, shows occasional feelings of being sad, or feeling hopeless is part of every child's life. However, some children feel sad or uninterested in things that they used to enjoy or feel helpless or hopeless in situations that they are able to change. When children feel persistent sadness and hopelessness, 
they may be diagnosed with depression. Examples of behaviors often seen in children with depression include feeling sad, hopeless, or irritable a lot of the time, not wanting to do or enjoy doing fun things, showing changes in eating patterns, eating a lot more or a lot less than usual, showing changes in sleep patterns, sleeping a lot more or a lot less than normal, showing changes in energy, being tired and sluggish, or tense and restless a lot of the time, having a hard time paying attention, feeling worthless, useless, or guilty, and showing self-injury or self-destructive behavior. Extreme depression can lead a child to think about suicide or plan for suicide. For youth ages 10 to 24 years, suicide is among the leading cause of death. Some children may not talk about their helpless or hopeless thoughts and may not appear sad. Depression might also cause a child to make trouble or act unmotivated, causing others not to notice that the child is depressed or to incorrectly label the child as a troublemaker or lazy. There is treatment for anxiety and depression, but do see a mental health care provider, a health care or mental health care provider, such as your child's primary care provider or a mental health specialist about getting an evaluation. Some of the signs and symptoms of anxiety or depression in children could be caused by others' conditions. So a mental health professional can develop a therapy plan that works best for the child and family, which could include child therapy, family therapy, or a combination of both. But for very young children, involving parents in the treatment is key. The school can also be included in the treatment plan, and consultation with a healthcare provider can help determine if medication should be part of the treatment. If you need any help finding treatment, there are online resources, such as mentalhealth.gov. It's a good resource. Dark mornings of October switch to dark evenings in November when daylight savings time ends. Both times of day, school children are in transit to school. Most of our roads in our county do not have sidewalks or good lighting. Please be alert for children, especially around known bus stops. And as we talk about bus stops, it's important to note that one of the weeks in October is Bus Safety Week, School Bus Safety Week. So with that week having just ended, I'm going to review a few school bus safety tips. This information is provided by the National Association for Pupil Transportation, or NAPT. School bus transportation plays a critical role in the education of our nation's students and is the direct link between a neighborhood and the classroom. More than 25 million children ride the yellow school bus every day. The National School Bus Safety Week serves as a reminder for students, parents, teachers, and our community to keep school bus safety in the forefront. And here are some tips to keep our children safe at the bus stop. In getting ready for school, have your children put everything they carry in a backpack or school bag so that they won't drop things along the way. Encourage students to wear bright, contrasting colors 
so they will be more easily seen by drivers. And make sure children leave home on time so they can arrive at the bus stop before the bus is due, ideally at least five minutes early. Running after or in front of a bus is extremely dangerous. When walking to the bus stop, walk young children to the bus stop or encourage children to walk in groups. There is safety in numbers and groups are easier for drivers to see. Practice good pedestrian behavior. Walk on the sidewalk, and if there is no sidewalk, stay out of the street. If you must walk in the street, walk single file, face traffic, and stay as close to the edge of the road as you can. Stop and look left, right, and then left again if you must cross the street. Do the same thing at driveways and alleys. Exaggerate your head turns and narrate your actions so your child knows you're looking left, right, and left. When at the bus stop, have children wait in a location where the driver can see them while driving down the street to avoid waiting in a house or car. Do not let children play in the street. Playing with balls or other toys that could roll into the street is also dangerous. When getting on and off the bus, warn children that if they drop something getting on and off the bus, they should never pick it up. Instead, they should tell the driver and follow the driver's instructions. Remind children to look at, to the right before they step off the bus. If you meet your child at the bus stop after school, Wait on the side where the child will be dropped off, not across the street. Children can be so excited to see you after school that they dash across the street and forget their safety rules. In terms of mobile devices on school buses, cell phones and other electronic devices are often permitted on the school bus as long as they're in backpacks or other holders keeping hands free to use handrails while boarding and departing the bus, that the sound is muted or headphones are worn, earbuds or similar devices are used, that the content does not violate law or school district policy or procedures, and that the use does not create any distraction for the driver. These are some simple tips about getting on and off the bus, getting ready for school, and attitudes around the bus stop. But don't forget, if you're driving and you see red lights flashing on a school bus, please stop. That includes both directions of the roadway are to stop when you see the red lights flashing on a school bus. The only time you're allowed to pass a school bus is when all four wheels are off the roadway of, you know, all the way past the white line of the road. Then you're allowed to drive slowly and alertly past the school bus. There are some times during a red light stop where a bus driver has to get out of the bus and physically cross the students across the street. The driver then is holding a stop sign and, it, and ushers the students across the street when it's safe. So when you do see a school bus, 
Please don't cross the street. Wait for the driver to cross you. And don't forget, if you're waiting in your car when the school bus arrives, please get out of the car in plenty of time to be waiting in line when the bus pulls up to your stop. Okay, that will ensure that students stay safe around our bus stops in our county. The last thing I'll mention around driver safety in schools is that high schools have young, inexperienced drivers. Please use special care and drive very slow in school zones, especially during release time around high schools. Student behavior can be erratic and it's extra important to be very alert when you're driving around high schools just due to the youngness and the inexperiencedness of the drivers. Dr. Andy Corin, our Mendocino County Public Health Officer, has a COVID-19 reminder for all of us. He emails to me, we'd like to remind everyone that COVID-19 is still very much in our community, along with this season's flu. Public Health is encouraging all school-aged children and staff to get the bivalent COVID-19 booster that protects against Omicron variants and to get the flu vaccine. Thanksgiving break is rapidly approaching. Public Health encourages all school districts to offer rapid tests to all their students and staff, strongly encouraging students and staff to self-test prior to return to school can be a process to help reduce exposure and outbreaks in our schools. So parents, your students should be able to bring home test kits from their schools so that they can self-test. We are ordering test kits now so that we will have enough on hand. Schools are requesting two test kits per student and staff. We do want to remind you about MyTurn.gov to be able to schedule a vaccination appointment. That website is http colon slash slash MyTurn.ca.gov. And that's where you can schedule a vaccination appointment for yourself and your child for COVID-19 and the flu. Okay, thank you Dr. Corn, for that health advisory. You're listening to Michelle Hutchins, County Superintendent of Schools with this month's edition of Inside Education. KZYX just recently finished or wrapped up their pledge drive, having made 70,000 of their goal for 100,000. I'd like to thank everyone who donated and remind all of you out there that KZYX still needs to make up 30000 for operating expenses. If you're interested in supporting community-supported radio, please donate at kzyx.org. You can still choose thank you gifts for do or donations of a certain amount or even more. It is super important that we support KZYX as programs like this are only available on community supported radio and to be able to understand the nuances of what's happening in our schools, programs like this only exist here 
and they only exist here if you provide the money to keep this station moving and going. So please consider a donation at kzyx.org. For the second half of Inside Education, we're going to take a look at student test scores. October obviously has the theme of being safe and we're transitioning to winter. In winter, it's about being warm. October, it's about being safe. One of the things that happened in this October that is unusual is that the California Department of Education has released the CASP scores. CASP stands for the California Assessment of Student Performance and Progress, which is also known as Smarter Balance Summative Assessments or our statewide assessments. This data for the 21-22 academic year is an early public release as normally these scores are not released until December. However, California Department of Education decided to release these scores in October in order to correspond with the National Assessment of Educational Progress or NAEP results that were released on the same date by the federal government. It's important to mention that the CASP scores or our Smarter Balance Assessment scores only are scores in math, English language arts, science, and English learner assessments. The reason we're limited is because the rest of the data is really due to come out in December but the state did decide to release these earlier data points to assist schools in helping their students and knowing exactly where their students are and to be able to target instruction to increase student performance overall. Most of the articles that you read about the recent CASP scores being released compares the scores to 2018-19, which is pre-pandemic. The purpose of these articles really is to prove that there's been learning loss caused by the pandemic. However, what I wanna warn people about when reading these articles is that looking at data year to year, one could be identifying conclusions that could be invalid. Several reasons for this exist. One, the cohorts of students are not identical. In other words, when you match year-to-year -year comparisons on these state assessments, they're not comparisons of apples to apples. For example, the students in grade three in 2018-19 are not students in grade three in 21-22. While the students in grade three in 2018-19 our students in grade six in 2021-22, the group is not 100% identical. Additional unique factors at play that could positively or negatively impact these year's scores are things like chronic absenteeism, trauma, expansion of supports through various COVID relief programs, the fact that our blueprint was adjusted again and again throughout the pandemic, declining enrollment that schools may have 
have had occur because of independent study not being an option parents wanted to do, so they went to homeschooling, or comprehensive research studies really have not yet been done to determine which factors have had the most influence on this year's results. So for that reason alone, I want to caution people from drawing preliminary conclusions from reading articles that compare year-to-year -year data. It might also be useful to understand that the 2022 administration was potentially the first time three grade levels of students experienced these tests. Under normal conditions, this is the case for only one grade of students, our third grade. But given that the suspension of these assessments happened in 2020, and that last year the state gave districts flexibility in doing the assessments in 2021, it's possible that large number of students were new to the assessment platforms this year, meaning grades three, four, and five in many schools may have had this assessment for the first time. As such, it's possible that a significantly higher number of students entered the summative assessment with less familiarity with the testing platform and its structure. That alone can have large effects on data results. With that said, let's look at California scores and let's compare them year to year. In California, for English language arts, we saw less than half of students, 47%, meeting or exceeding standards for English language arts, which was a 4% point drop from 51% in 2018-19, which was before our public health crisis. The rate of students who met or exceeded math standards fell seven percentage points from 40 percent in 1819 to 33 percent in 21-22. However, some results hint that efforts to support academic recovery such as expanding learning opportunities are helping. What's really interesting is the National Assessment of Educational Progress showed the largest declines in math scores on record and a less drastic, though still worrisome, drop in reading scores. The rigorous standardized assessment, which is also known as the nation's report card, is administered by the National Center for Education Statistics to a nationally representative sample of students in grades four through eight. This administration of the test in the spring of 2022 was the first since the pandemic began. Nationally, declines spanned the political and demographic makeup of states, making it difficult to conclude the role the length of pandemic-related campus closures played in students' performance. California education leaders were prepared to see lower test scores due to the challenges of the COVID-19 pandemic. From remote schooling to keeping students and staff healthy when in-person instruction resumed statewide in the 21-22 school year, while California fared better than other states in mitigating learning loss as measured by test scores, the depth of the decline is disturbing. Well, let's look at our actual results. 
when we look at, we disaggregate by race and ethnicity in California, all groups saw between a two and six percentage point decrease in meeting or exceeding English language arts standards between 1819 and 21-22, with the largest dips among white, Latino, American Indian, Native Alaskan students all dipping five percentage points to 61, 36, and 33% respectively, and those who identify as two or more races dipping 6% points to 60%. 16% of students with a reported disability met or exceeded English language arts standards consistent with our 2019 scores. Homeless students saw a five percentage point dip in meeting or exceeding English language arts standards from a 33% in 2019 to 28% in 2022. Female students saw an overall five percentage point drop, 56% to 51%, and male students saw a three percentage point drop, 46% to 43%. Locally, in Mendocino County, we were below overall the state scores, with 32% meeting or exceeding state standards in English language arts. Our female students had a 9% drop from 2019, 18-19, uh, from 45% to 36%. And our male students experienced a six point drop from 33% in 1819 to 27% in uh, 2022. Overall, our data mimicked the state data with the percentage differences between all ethnicities being fairly similar. The difference between the state data and our local data is that our local data shows us more between a seven and 10 point drop, whereas the state data is closer to a two or four point drop. Did not find any area that stood out that the drop was significantly more than a seven to 10 percentage point drop between the two years. So what happened with math? Students who I, in California, students who identify as two or more races saw the biggest drop in math scores for meeting or exceeding standards with an eight percentage point change, as did native Hawaiian Pacific Islander students. All racial ethnic groups saw between a five and eight percentage point decrease from meeting or exceeding standards with Latino students seeing the second largest dip from 28 to 21%. Student with disabilities statewide saw a change of two percentage points from 13% in 2019 to 11% in 2022 in meeting or exceeding math standards. Homeless students saw a seven percentage point change in meeting or exceeding standards from 23 in 2019 to 16% in 2022. 
Female students saw a difference of a seven percentage point in meeting or exceeding mathematics standards from 39% in 2019 to 32% in 2022, compared to male students who went from 40% to 35% respectively. Locally, our data in math we achieved 33% um, meeting or exceeding state standards. Um, no, I'm sorry. We locally, we achieved 19.9% meeting or exceeding state standards in math with female students uh, achieving at 18.2 percentage points and male students achieving at 21.3%. We are far below the state standards in math with our female students, again, achieving about eight points lower than our male students. And looking at comparison data from 2019, female students were about eight points lower in 2022 and male students were five points lower in 2022 than they were in 2018-19 locally. English language proficiency assessments for California was also published on October 24th. According to summative LPAC, which are the English language proficiency assessment results, English learners in grades five through 12 performed better on the assessment in 2022 than 2019, while students in the lower grades had slight declines. Nearly 16% of students who took the assessment earned the highest performance level, proficient, meaning their written and oral English language skills are well developed. This is the same rate of proficiency as 1819. Locally, the rate of proficiency in 2022 was 12.31% and in 2018-19 was around a little bit over 13%. So essentially the same proficiency also maintained here locally in Mendocino County. How did California compare in comparison to the national results that were recently released? These are called the NAEP results, which is the National Assessment for Educational Performance. And the average mathematics score fell five points for fourth graders and eight points for eighth graders in, since 2019, while reading scores decreased by three points on an average for both grades. The percentage of students performing below the NAEP basic level increased across both subjects and grade levels. In math, 25% of fourth graders did not reach the basic level, nor did 38% of eighth graders. In reading, 37% of fourth graders were below the NAEP basic level in 2022, up from 34% in 2019 while the percentage of eighth graders not meeting the basic level increased from 27% in 2019 to 30% in 2022. 
The NAEP basic level is the least stringent of the three achievement level goals set by the National Assessment Governing Board and represents partial mastery of the prerequisite knowledge and skills that are required to meet the NAEP proficient level, which represents competency over challenging subject matter. You're listening to Inside Education. This is Michelle Hutchins, County Superintendent of Schools. We're covering the results of California Smarter Balance Assessment and the National Assessment of Student Performance. Nationally, our Black, Hispanic, and Native American students experience larger than average dips on both fourth grade tests with more than 40% of Black and Native American students, more than a third of Hispanic students, and 14% of white students performing at the lowest level in math. On 8th grade math assessments, more than half of students in poverty, as well as Black, Hispanic, and Native American students perform below the basic level in 2022, along with more than a quarter of white students. In 8th grade, reading scores declined only for white students by 4 points. Scores declined in 4th grade reading for Native American, Black, Hispanic, and white students. Surprisingly, there was no consistent evidence that gaps between low, middle, and high-income students grew significantly, nor did gaps between students with disabilities, English learners, and their peers. Charter schools saw the biggest declines in math, while fourth graders dropping six points and eighth graders by nine points, although eighth graders in every kind of school, private, charter, and traditional public schools, lost ground in math as did fourth graders in both traditional and public charter schools. Now in California, despite concern that longer school closures in California would be especially detrimental to students, eighth grade math scores fell by six points, compared to 13 points in Oklahoma and seven points in Texas and Florida all states where schools were able to reopen starting in the fall of 2020. For California fourth graders, math scores fell by four points compared to five point drops in Texas and Florida, a six point drop in Colorado, and a 10 point drop in New York. California students showed no significant change in reading scores in either fourth or eighth grades despite a majority of states showing declines. However, only about 30% of California 8th graders are achieving proficiency in reading. Now, we will say that Los Angeles Unified School District scores, while they're still low, fared better than national averages when examining other large urban districts. LAUSD's 4th graders saw a 4-point drop in math compared to a 9-point drop in New York City and a 15-point drop in Baltimore City Schools. The district was one of only four large school systems that saw no significant change in scores for 8th grade math. In LAUSD, 8th grade reading scores increased by 9 points, making it the only large district to post a gain. Still, with the 2022 score increase, only about 28% of 8th graders in LA achieved proficiency in reading. So what this tells us is that the school closures in California may not have had the impact that we think. 
So more study really needs to be done into this data to truly analyze what impact the student learning that I say is unfinished, not lost. Over the past year, the phrase learning loss has been used to describe the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on student learning. Despite a disrupted school year, there are countless stories and artifacts of student learning, progress, and strength. While academic learning may be unfinished, it is not lost. With commitment and care, educators, school leaders, school support staff, families, and communities continue to provide students with opportunities to learn while also tending to students' physical, social, and emotional needs. Remarkably, students continue to demonstrate new and deepening competencies such as problem solving in the moment, navigating uncertainty, learning new technologies, and relying on the resilience and strength of family and community. Student learning being unfinished, not lost, shifts the narrative. A responsive system grounded in equity, meeting students where they are, and accelerating their learning by building on strengths and needs. Collectively, this means redesigning teaching and learning and re-examining deeply rooted deficit-based thinking. Learning happens everywhere for students every day. Humans are born to make meaning, to synthesize and to develop understanding through lived experiences. As meaning makers, students are primed for learning, remote or otherwise. They are actively building schema and new understanding of the world and are ready to apply what they know and understand to what they are ready to learn next. When students' lived experiences are viewed through an asset lens and there is value assigned to their funds of knowledge, cultural, linguistic, social-emotional, and academic, students are seen as fully human and in turn bring their full selves to the school experience. As Alexander Enswill and Olson conclude, learning works best when children feel they are partners in the enterprise. A review of published information regarding learning loss demonstrates that the turn is most often used to maintain a fixed perception of learning as a static or finite destination to be measured, quantified, or compared. Predictive modeling is used to project how much a student is likely to learn in a typical school year. Data can be compared to what was observed at some point during the COVID-19 pandemic. This year has been anything but typical, which makes any comparison indefensible. In addition, the disruption of typical learning patterns and environments doesn't mean that learning isn't happening in different spaces or that students are losing something that can't be retaught, regained, or reframed. When the focus is on looking for signs of learning loss, there's a risk of missing student strengths and negating the essential link between learning and culture. This deficit thinking occurs when educators and other adults look for and overemphasize what students may lack or do differently instead of building on the skills, 
resources, lived experiences, and innate gifts that students possess and have been built upon through the unique experiences of the past year. Deficit framing disproportionately harms students historically underserved by the system. Groups of students who are subject to deficit thinking often tend to have fewer opportunities to learn and less access to ambitious, challenging material. As students return to in-person instruction, schools have opportunity to learn more about students' strengths and needs. This information is unlikely to be elicited from single data point, especially the California Student Assessment <laughs> scores. Relying on one data source or depending on one assessment is likely to create a narrow and limiting story around student learning. We have to start with what students can do, listen to their stories, assess with the lens of what they are ready to learn next. By collecting multiple artifacts of their work, reflections of their own learning, and consistently engaging in formative assessment, a broad and more complete student learning profile emerges. A student-centered approach to assessing learning yields high value and it informs teaching and builds relationships between student and teacher. In the simplest terms, an asset-based approach focuses on strengths. It views diversity in thought, culture, and traits as positive assets. Teachers and students alike are valued for what they bring to the classroom rather than being characterized by what they may need to work on or what they are perceived to lack. Asset-based approaches that are culturally responsive foster growth and support community building. Culturally responsive education not only supports students' academic success, but also fosters the development of traits that transcend academic contexts, like resilience and confidence. It's the work of adults in the system to see students' strengths and teach from them. It is critical to focus attention on accelerating learning by investing in relationships, honoring student voice, and designing integrated learning. In contrast to remediation efforts, which perpetuate low expectations and lead to disparate outcomes, Students who accessed accelerated learning and advanced coursework demonstrate consistently higher learning outcomes, increased engagement, and agency. Teaching and learning in response to a pandemic requires a focus on key ideas, relevant learning, and formative assessment practices. A decision to retain a child is a potentially life-changing event and must be carefully considered in partnership between the family, educators, school leaders, and where appropriate, the student. Local school districts are responsible for developing policies and address grade retention and promotion. Retention and promotion are not the only instructional options. There are better alternatives. Appropriate planning, evidence-based interventions, focused tutoring, peer mentoring, 
and strong family school connection can shift learning patterns and create the conditions for learning to accelerate. The disruption of typical schooling over the past year provides an opportunity for all educators to reimagine schools in ways that can transform learning for students and teachers. What would it look like to truly develop equitable education from the place of abundance rather than scarcity? How can leaders take what they've learned from this past year, such as the importance of partnering closely with families and communities to build a more empowering and equitable educational future? How do we intentionally redistribute and resource our schools to reflect the disproportionate impact of COVID-19 on students and communities? As districts plan for summer learning and beyond, we have a unique opportunity to fundamentally redesign educational systems. The opportunity must be met with detailed designs and strategies that concretely pair the best of what we know about teaching and learning with operational realities school by school and community by community across Mendocino County. This concludes our show tonight. Thank you for listening to Inside Education. This is Michelle Hutchins, County Superintendent of Schools. And thank you for supporting Community Supported Radio. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can go to kzyx.org to find more shows and content like this one. While there, you can stream us live or check out our jukebox. And if you like what you hear, consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. We are Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, listener-supported community radio. KZYX, Philo, 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Woolitz and Ukiah, 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. Thanks for listening.